Thank you so much for your flexibility and uh, your love, just as we have week by week tried to find the wisest ways of gathering and our guidelines, just a welcome to those on, online. This has been a strange time and there's no one right way to do this thing. But uh, so appreciate the way many of you have filled in gaps as our volunteer army has been a bit depleted. And it's great just to see the trajectory moving in the right direction in terms of people struggling, str struggling with illness. Um, we took some time to rest and reflect and reset as a family beginning of this year. And that was a real privilege, except I got sick as well. And uh, still it was excellent just to watch online as we began our Preaching to the Choir series. And the preaching to the choir is essentially a relook at the foundational truths that form us. And we call ourselves at Southlands a gospel-centered, spirit-empowered community on mission. Or now, because we have three congregations, communities on mission. And JD and Ryan just did a great job at unpacking what it is to be, to be gospel Centered. And I just want to do a short recap before I talk about what it is to be a Spirit-empowered community. You know, I, I think if we've been around church for a while, we, we get a little bit blasé or familiar with the truths that initially saved us. And uh, they can get dusty, they can get a little bit cliche, and we can find ourselves saying to the preacher or our mentor or our friend or our engaged group leader, tell me something I don't already know. I know this stuff, I've, I've heard this stuff. You're preaching to the choir. But what, what we actually find is that in our culture, which is full of, you have more access to new ideas and new philosophies and new information than anyone before in history. And because we're a curious people, and we should be, we should be curious, we should be thoughtful, we should be aware of all the different strains and philosophies out there. But, but what can so easily happen is that we can lose confidence in the gospel. We can lose confidence in the simple truths that saved us. And we can lose confidence that they're still powerfully at work shaping us. And what can happen is that the gospel, which began centrally in our lives, for any Christian, the gospel should be main street. What can happen is we don't start by denying the gospel. We start just by displacing the gospel with something else that's central. And the gospel moves from main street out to the suburbs of our lives and something else takes its place. It might be career. It might be relationships. It might be possessions. It might be a good social cause. It might be politics. It might be what you think about the end of the world as we know it. And these things aren't in and of themselves wrong, but what happens is they become Main Street and the gospel actually moves out to the, side, to the suburbs. What I'm trying to say is the choir needs preaching to because the choir forgets. And it's not so much new truth that we need, we need old truth to sink deeper. 
As Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. And as Martin Luther hundreds of years later said, the gospel should be preached as the central doctrine of all Christianity, beat it into people's heads every day. I don't know about you, but I need the gospel beat into my head because so easily I lose confidence in it and I start putting more trust in something else. And then what happens is I try to prove myself to God and I lose a sense of the sweetness of the grace of God that there's nothing I can do that would make Him love me more. And so to be gospel-centered is just to allow the gospel to come back to the center, to Main Street and all these other aspects of our lives. They're there, but they side streets and not the Main Street. Amen. Why are we preaching to the choir? Because the choir needs to remember. The choir loses the wonder. The choir forgets. And Paul in 1 Thessalonians, we've been going through that, is, has been writing to a church that was powerfully saved in the gospel. It says when they were saved, they received it with the Holy Spirit and power and deep conviction. And it produced in them a faith that worked and a love that labored and a hope that endured. It says that because of the gospel, they turned from serving worthless idols to serve the true and living God. The gospel bore fruit. The gospel rang out from them. It was very powerful. But what happened was when they received the gospel, we find in Acts 17, the church in Thessalonica began to experience persecution. There was this guy called Jason, who was a cousin of Paul, who opened up his home to Paul and this church was launched. In three weeks, this church was planted, three Sabbath days. But poor old Jason was dragged off. He'd done nothing. He hadn't preached anything. He just opened up his home. He was dragged off and charged. And so this church was thrust into persecution. And what we find in 1 Thessalonians is that the gospel that had saved them had started to move out to the suburbs of their lives. It was no longer central. And what they had started to really main street was the end times. They were like, this has got so bad. Jesus, you must be coming back tomorrow. So they were stopping working. They were moving to the hills in caves, just like, you just got to come back now. I don't know about you, but have any of you in the last couple of years just going, Jesus, can you just kind of rescue us right now? It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine, right, right? Any of you feel that? And it's natural in affliction just to go, okay, Jesus, you got to come back now. And what Paul did is he wrote to them saying, no, we should live expectant, but that should not be Main Street because Jesus is still at work with His gospel, not in a rescue operation, but in a redemption operation. He's like the same gospel that powerfully saved you. It's still ringing out from you and saving others. So don't just wait for the life belt. And I believe that's a word for you and I in our day, because it does feel like the, the days are getting darker and more desperate. Oh Lord, chuck us a life belt, get us out of here. And what Paul does is he takes them back to first truths that you were saved powerfully through the gospel. The Spirit is still at work in you. You called to be a compelling community and you called to be on mission. And so the last two weeks we've been, talked, we've been talking about what it is to be gospel-centered. Today, I wanna talk about what it is to be a Spirit-empowered community on mission.
Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. But your faith, sorry, for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the coming wrath. This is the word of the Lord, amen? Amen. D.A. Carson says, talking about how the gospel can move out from being main street to the suburbs of our lives, he says, one generation believes the gospel The next generation assumes the gospel and the next generation denies the gospel. Those are haunting words, aren't they? We don't begin by a flat out denial of the gospel. What happens is it just starts to move out and what we one day believed, then we assume. We've seen that in churches. We've seen that in some families. They don't start out denying. They just begin to assume it and their kids deny it. And so this is a wake-up call for the Thessalonian church and for us to say, no, 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 let's not assume the gospel. Let's bring it back so we absolutely believe it. We're staking our very lives on this thing. He's saying, Thessalonians, don't assume the gospel. This gospel came to you and it turned your lives upside down. And the same gospel that saved you is still at work shaping in you and it's ringing out from you. It's ringing forth and saving other people. And then Paul does something wonderful. He, he talks about the gospel and the spirit in the same sentence. He says in verse five, he says, for we know brothers loved by God that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word. In other words, when I preached, I preached the gospel, it was a word. How many of us know that, that the gospel is not advice? that we take so that we behave better. The gospel is news that we believe. The gospel is not about behavior, it's about belief. And once you believe the scandalous grace that Christ lived a life that we couldn't live, He died the death that we should have died in our place to give us life, actually we start to bear fruit in our lives and our lives do actually change. And that's what happened with them. They turned from idols to worship God. Their lives were a work of faith, a labor of love, steadfastness of hope. There was change, but they didn't first behave. No, no, they believed and out of that came a changed life. 
And Paul says that when the gospel came to you, it came in a word and you believed it, but it also came in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. I, I want you to see here that Paul marries what many churches divorce, and that is the gospel and the spirit. And there are many churches that are like, we're about the centrality of the gospel. And then there are other churches that are like, we're all about the spirit. And Paul is saying, you should never divorce those things. The gospel and the spirit always work together. The spirit was at work in you as the word was preached and it brought conviction. And it wasn't just conviction, there was power to change. Some people come to Southlands and say, we can't kind of work you guys out because like you love preaching the scripture and you're always breaking bread. And that seems like you're kind of gospel-centered, but, but you also love laying hands on people and, and, and prophesying. And I hear some of you speaking in tongues. You're kind of like a, like a Bapticostals. And I wanna say, well, yeah, we kind of like a junkyard dog in some ways. But I think that's biblical. And, and what I'm not doing is that we've got the corner of truth, gospel centered, spirit and power, and the rest of those churches, I'm not preaching this in pride. What I'm saying is that every church has an opportunity through the Word of God for a wedding of gospel and spirit. That's how the Lord designs us to be. And so the gospel is Main Street, but what is it to recognize that the Holy Spirit comes with full conviction? And then later on in verse seven, he says, and with much affliction, you receive the word through the joy of the Holy Spirit. 14 years ago, when we arrived here, there was a massive difference between churches that believed in the gifts of the Spirit and those that didn't. And we kept on meeting people that just like, we just don't believe in the gifts of the Spirit at all. They're not for today. The Holy Spirit is the one who inspired Scripture and that's about all. And I wanna say, man, I'm so grateful because over the last 14 years, I've heard that less and less. I, I very seldom meet people that just say, I don't believe the Holy Spirit does any miracles today. And maybe you hear that you say, no, no, I'm in that camp. That, that's fine, but I'm just saying, you're getting fewer and fewer. And that's a wonderful thing. You're among friends. And let me just say, you're among friends because I was raised in that kind of church. But then we, the minister of our church did something crazy. I think he thought it was crazy bad. I thought it was crazy good. And he hired as our youth pastor, the Pentecostal church leader in our town. He didn't know what he was getting himself in for. And there these young good Methodist kids were filled with the Spirit and began to just experience the phenomena of the Spirit. And it was a wonderful thing. So I've got great grace for people that go like, whoa, I don't know, I don't know about this stuff. But I wanna say that 14 years later, I generally find that people have a category for the power and the gifts of the Spirit. But what happens is you, get, you tend to get churches that are all about Holy Spirit gifts. They want the phenomena. They want the falling down, the shaking, the laughing, the prophesying, the healing. We want it all as much as possible. And then you get other churches that say, we're not against that, but what we are about is the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5, love, joy, peace, 
patience, kindness, goodness. We're about that stuff. Like we don't want the spectacular. We just want, the, we just want to be more like Jesus and the Holy Spirit does that. And you were probably raised in one of the other kind of church. And I wanna say both of them have got a bit of truth. But what we see in this Thessalonian church is that God wants us both to have fruit of the Spirit and gifts of the Spirit. He doesn't want you or us or any of us to choose. Can I just get a little Presbyterian amen there? And if you are not feeling that, that's fine. Like wrestle with me, but we're gonna find that this, this church, when they were saved, they, they had an experience of what I would term spirit-empowered virtue. That fruit of Christ's character, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. Paul calls it conviction. There was a conviction that resulted just in a change of life. And we need that. A spirit-empowered church needs spirit-empowered virtue. The problem with much of the charismatic and Pentecostal church is that it lacks virtue. And they've got a lot of power, but often a lot of scandal to go with the power. And the Lord just weeps and says, no, 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 keep on with the power, but I want virtue. And then there are other churches and other Christians It's like, Lord, we just wanna look more like you. We wanna be loving, joyful, good, self-controlled, all those things. And Jesus is saying, yes, yes, yes. And therefore we don't want the, the gifts. And Jesus is saying, you don't have to choose. You don't have to choose. And a spirit-empowered church is one which leans into both. This is both a challenge. This is also an invitation to you and to me. And so I wanna talk a little bit about spirit-empowered virtue, what we see here. That when the, the word was preached, it came with the Holy Spirit and full conviction, verse five. Full conviction, isn't that a beautiful description? These people were properly saved. They didn't get a little bit saved. It says in verse 10, you turn from worthless idols to serve the true and living God. I just picture that in my eye. I mean, these people were, were, were paying and, and, and giving food to and visiting the temple probably daily to serve these worthless idols. And when the gospel came to them, their eyes opened and they're just like, we don't have to give food or money or bow down to a stone or a carved image. There is a real live living Savior who gave it all for us. We can come to God based on His death, not on our payment. And their eyes just came open. It's like, we're not giving one more cent to that dead idol. We're coming to serve the living and true God. That's the gospel. That's salvation. And some of us look and say, Yo, well, we, don't, we don't do that stuff, but come on, we do bow down to worthless idols. The idols of sport, the idols of career, the idols of body image, the idols of sexuality, the idols of relationship, it's often really good stuff and we're just serving it. We're willing to sacrifice whatever we want for that thing. We think it's gonna give us life and then we come up empty and hungry and then we take a taste of the living water and we go, oh, that thing, it was dead. Now I'm alive, yeah. now I'm alive. Yeah. Yeah. And then what happens is we start to get convicted about things in our lives. The Word of God was preached with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. And this is the first aspect of Spirit-empowered virtue is that we get 
convicted. Jesus said it in John 17. He said, it's for your good that I go because if I go, I will leave the Holy Spirit, John 17. And he said, and when the Spirit comes, don't tell Jim, he will, what's he gonna do? He will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. You see, often our culture says this, oh, you know, God doesn't shame us. God doesn't guilt us. You're absolutely right, but God does convict us. It's the only way we can appreciate the gospel when we get conviction that I am a sinner who's fallen short of the glory of God and I'm in need of a savior. And these people came under great conviction as Paul preached the word. And so they began to repent. This is the first thing that a spirit-empowered church does. Let me say this, if you were raised in a, a vineyard or a Pentecostal or a, just a charismatic church, and I honor all of those churches, but what I often find is people that came from those churches, they don't expect often for the Holy Spirit to be powerfully at work in preaching because often they experienced God more powerfully in prayer and worship and prophecy. And so when the word is preached, they're like, yeah, no, no, this is good, this is good and solid, but I'm not expecting the Holy Spirit to really come. And I'm just saying, actually, a spirit-empowered church expects the Holy Spirit to be powerfully at work in preaching. I call it something of the golden triangle. You know those moments doesn't happen every sermon, but those moments when it's like the preacher's preaching the word, but there's something extra. It's like the preacher is communing with Jesus. So it's not just horizontal. It's not just between the preacher and the person, or maybe it's in a life group setting. It's not just horizontal. There's something of like the preacher communing with Jesus. And then as the people re receive the word of God, they themselves are actually communing with Jesus themselves. And sometimes it looks like a amen or preach it. But actually when it's genuine, it's not trying to puff up the preacher. It's people coming, coming under conviction and saying, yes, Lord, I want this. I'm doing business with you. And you see people started to scribble notes and you see people sending a text and it's not actually just doom scrolling through your Instagram or checking your fantasy score. It's actually like, I need to go and repent to that person. I need to go and confess to that person. It's like the golden triangle. There's preaching going, but actually people are communing with God through the Holy Spirit and He's powerfully at work. And I don't just say that as a preacher. There are times when I'm sitting under preaching, when I get transported and it's like, I'm hearing, but now it's me and Jesus and He is doing business. And I wanna say, can we be that kind of church? Yeah. Sometimes the preacher knocks it out the park, but the preacher doesn't have to knock it out the park for you to do business with God. Yeah. I sometimes get, get so sad when I, I find people get caught in unconfessed sin. And I just wanna say, Lord, what's wrong with my preaching that they didn't get convicted? But it's not just the preacher's responsibility. It's the people's responsibility to have soft hearts and to be quick to confess. It's hard to confess, isn't it? But there's such a relief that comes such a relief that comes when you go to your husband or your wife or your friend or your pastor, you just say, look, you just need to know. It might not even be sin, it might be temptation. It might be just a weight that drags you down. There's such a relief that comes in confession. 
the joy of God breaks in. I want to encourage you to be that. I know I'm laboring the point, but there's spirit-empowered conviction and then there's spirit-empowered assurance. The Word of God was preached to you with power and with the Holy Spirit in full conviction. Actually, that word conviction means supreme assurance. And how do we know that? It's because Paul says, for we know brothers loved by God. In other words, when the gospel came to them, it didn't just come through conviction of sin. It came with a supreme assurance that they were loved by God, that they were chosen by God. That's one of the things that the Spirit loves to do. Romans 8 says, we've not received a spirit of fear, but we've received a spirit of adoption. And the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirits that we are children of God. Sometimes I go into churches, because we travel quite a bit, and especially churches that love preaching the Bible and say, we're gospel-centered, we're gospel-centered. They almost only ever call God by the name Jesus. It's Jesus this, Jesus that, Jesus everything. Which is awesome because Jesus is everything. But remember what Jesus said in John 14. I am the way to the Father. I'm the way to the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. When the Spirit comes, you find people calling God Father. They do it in the name of Jesus. They have faith in the name of Jesus. They love the gospel, but actually they have a relationship with God the Father. Why? Because the Spirit bears witness with our spirits that we are children of God. We know brothers loved and chosen by God. Even Jesus in His teaching on prayer, He says, when you pray, say, hello, when you pray, say, you know, Jesus wants you to call His Father your Father. Isn't that beautiful? That's the gospel. When Mary tried to cling to Him, Jesus says, don't cling to me, Mary, because I am going to my Father and your Father. That's the gospel, that Jesus' Father becomes our Father. We get to call Him Dad. And that brings incredible assurance to us because many of us have difficult relationships with our dads. But Jesus says, look, there's a perfect heavenly Father and you get to call Him Dad. It's this beautiful moment of assurance in John Wesley's life, who's this great gospel preacher. And it says this in his journal, May 24, 1738. In the evening, I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street, where one was reading Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which, which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. Isn't that beautiful? It's just the assurance that the Spirit brings. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given me that He had taken away my sins, every, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. Remember being an 18-year-old, leaving on a greyhound bus to be a year away from my mom and dad for the very first time, I was 18. I remember in the middle of the night, just feeling so lonely and just saying these words aloud, middle of the night, Greyhound bus, God, I miss my dad. I just remember 
this warmth. I, I could say the same. I felt my heart strangely warmed as the Holy Spirit bore witness with my spirit that God the Father was there in assurance. The Spirit does that. He wants to do that for some of you. That's what a Spirit-empowered church looks like. There's quick confession of sin. There's a deep assurance of God the Father. And, and, and the Spirit will use that especially when you are geographically separated from your parents. Perhaps one of them dies. Perhaps there's just a difficult relationship the Spirit loves to bear witness with our spirits. And then secondly, I've only got two points and I'm gonna spend probably only 10 minutes on this. There's Spirit-empowered virtue, conviction and assurance. There's also Spirit-empowered phenomena in this passage. And I love it. It says in verse 17, sorry, verse, verse six, not 17. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example. And then it says, and the word of God sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia. I wanna say that word, joy, so they believe the gospel, they experience affliction, but they are filled with joy through the Holy Spirit. That's a beautiful description, isn't it? How many of you are experiencing some kind of affliction? It's not just, it's not necessarily like them where they're being dragged away like Jason, but just like, man, I'm pushing a rock uphill right now. Any of you? Just three of you? Awesome, all of this side, you're just living your best life now? <laughs> affliction, I mean, these are times of affliction, aren't they? They're times of affliction. And what happened was these Christians were filled with joy in the Holy Spirit so that the Word of God sounded forth everywhere the gospel was preached. I wanna say the word joy here is more than just like happiness and I'm getting through it and I'm gritting my teeth. The word joy here is charis which actually is connected to our word charismatic, charismatic gifts. And it literally means a phenomena, a feeling of being transported and a divine spark. What was happening here was more than just spirit-empowered virtue. This was phenomenal, that in the midst of affliction, they were so like, they were just chuckling through their afflictions. They were giggling. They were just laughing. I wanna say that's not natural. That is supernatural. And it was so visible that the gospel sounded forth and it says they became an example to all who believed. It's like, look at those guys. What is going on with them? They should be so grumpy. They should be so down in the dumps. They are laughing. It's a little bit like that Ephesians 5 passage where Paul says, don't get drunk on wine, but be filled with the Spirit. This is what was going on here. It was phenomenal. And I just wanna ask you, are you, do you have a category for that too? Because we should be about Spirit-empowered virtue. Oh Lord, make me more like Christ. Give me conviction, give me assurance. That's good stuff. But there's more than that. There's this overflowing supernatural joy that actually causes people to come to faith. And I just wanna say, I want some of that too. How about you? 
And you know what? We have permission to ask God for that. You say, oh, we shouldn't chase phenomena, Alan. We should just ask the Holy Spirit to bear fruit in our lives. Well, what does 1 Corinthians 14 mean then? Where it says, pursue love, that's virtue, and eagerly desire the spiritual gifts. That's a command to say, Lord, I want my life to look powerful. I want my life to look supernatural. I don't wanna pretend. I don't wanna fake it till I make it, but I want something of my life to be so like, that doesn't make sense. How come you're so happy? Or how come you're so peaceful? How come you got so much faith? Well, I'm full of the Holy Spirit. Because you know what? If we don't get full of the Holy Spirit, we get full of ourselves. And that's not good. It's an amazing thing if you look at Wesley, John Wesley, the guy who had his heart strangely warmed. This was in the Wesleyan revival that swept across England and jumped over here. And there was a contemporary of Wesley called George Whitfield. Any of you heard of him? Just great, I mean, the great awakening, he was part of that here. And, and, and Whitfield was a gospel-centered dude, man. He was just like, let's just keep it to the gospel, guys. Let's not get too crazy now. Let's not get into the phenomena. And he went to Wesley's meetings because Wesley, he was preaching the gospel. But let me tell you, people were encountering phenomenal working of the Holy Spirit. You do a history of the Wesleyan revival. The police in those days would go around after a meeting, they'd have it in, in, in open fields and they'd find people lying out cold in the field and they would smell their breath. And if their breath smelt of alcohol, they'd say, oh, they're drunk. And if it didn't, the police said, oh, it's Wesley fever. I tell no lies. People would encounter the power of the Holy Spirit. They'd be out for the count and they'd get up changed. And Whitfield was like, this is a load of junk, man. I'm gonna come and just make sure that this stuff is like on track. And I think my friend Wesley is getting off track. And so he went to a meeting and history says, Whitfield had serious reservations about the role of the supernatural acts of God in, in uh, Wesley's meetings. However, on at least one known occasion, he also experienced unusual outward signs of God's presence as Wesley preached. Whitfield ex experienced trembling, convulsions, groaning, and fainting. How about that? You go there to prove it's wrong and then you find yourself fainting and groaning. And you say, well, Alan, we shouldn't chase phenomena. You're right. But 1 Corinthians 14 says, eagerly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you might prophesy. The problem is when we forget virtue in it. But if you pursue love while you eagerly desire, it's okay, we're a little bit more balanced. Now, I'm not saying Southlands was perfectly balanced. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying we do not have to choose. And you, and you, and you, and you, and you, each of us have to do a little bit of a personal assessment. And we have to ask, firstly, is my life open to the Holy Spirit at all? And secondly, am I more about virtue or am I more about phenomena? And if I lean one way or the other, I'm just asking Holy Spirit, come and straighten me up. Come and straighten me up. Can you work with me on that? I'm asking that for myself. And I wanna land with two examples in our church of Spirit-empowered phenomena because we can do all about Wesley. But is God still doing that here? 
You're awfully quiet. <laughs> if the golden triangle's at work, that's fine. No problem. You're communing with God. There's a lady in our church called Lavette Henningham. And Lavette had breast cancer last year. And she went through all of the terrible pain associated with that. We prayed for her. In the end, it seemed like God healed her through medicine. And we've got a category for that, absolutely. We thank God for that. But she didn't go through without great loss and great pain. But she kept on saying through it, I have this strange joy. I just can't make sense of it. Yeah, she had bad days, but I know her family. They themselves were just going, it's weird, it doesn't make sense. She's just got this amazing joy. And people started noticing it even beyond the church. She got through and she's in remission. We just praise God for that. But a couple of weeks after she got her like, I'm in remission, she comes to me and she says, can you write me a resume? I say, what? I'm thinking she's gonna change her job. She says, no, I just, the, the Spirit of God has been so powerfully at work in me. I feel compelled to volunteer at a teenage pregnancy clinic. And I just, I don't wanna waste this work of God. I want other people to taste it. And I just wanna say, that's not just virtue. She's a virtuous woman. That's not just virtue, that is phenomenal. You don't do that, you don't come through breast cancer and then just wanna do that. You generally is like, I just need another year to like recover from this. I wanna say that's a wonderful example. It doesn't sound dramatic to you, I think it's incredibly dramatic. Another example. There's a man, young man, 19 years old called Alex. He's the boyfriend of the daughter of a family that comes here. He's been coming here for about a year, exploring faith. Around halfway through last year, Alex starts having seizures that the gospel, the, the, gospel, the doctor can't explain. Terrible seizures, so much so he goes into a coma. He was in a coma for eight weeks at the end of last year. And we thought he was gonna die. His father's and my engaged group, we were just crying out to God every Wednesday. We were like, how's Alex, how's Alex? The doctors just don't have any, any diagnosis. They don't know what's going on. We pray, we pray, we pray. Around December, sort of halfway through, he starts, he stops having seizures. Doctors still don't know. They try some medicine. It seems to work even better. He gets better and better and better. About two weeks ago, he gets released. He comes out of his coma after eight weeks in a coma, gets released from hospital. He's not 100% better, but he's probably about 70% better. So that in itself is just miraculous. Eight weeks in a coma, who comes out of that? And when he comes out of his coma, he just says, one thing I know, I've got to be baptized. When can I be baptized? I wanna just say, that's phenomenal. God got him through. Maybe a combination of supernatural healing and medicine. I mean, no doctor is saying, I healed him. They're just like, oh, we don't know, we don't know. But now actually Jesus is healing his heart. In a couple of weeks time, as soon as he can stand, we're gonna, we're gonna baptize him, it's phenomenal. Yeah. I just wanna say, man, we don't have to fake it. We don't have to pretend. It doesn't always have to be spectacular. But a spirit-empowered church has a category for spirit-empowered virtue and spirit-empowered phenomena. And we're saying, Lord Jesus, may your spirit make me more like you. And Lord Jesus, may your spirit be so powerfully at work in me 
that your gospel echoes forth and causes others to be saved. And I just want to say, who would not want both those categories? Who would not need both those categories? Let's stand together. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much that you promised that it was for your good, that our good that you go. Because if you went, you would leave us the Holy Spirit. And we just ask that your Holy Spirit would empower us both with virtue and phenomena, both with fruit and gifts. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come with full conviction upon your people. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would come and fill us with joy in the face of affliction. God, how we need you. Father in heaven, our Father, your Son told us to ask you for the Holy Spirit. Your Son told us that we should ask and seek and knock for you would give us the Holy Spirit if we ask. And so we simply ask, come Holy Spirit. You who were at work in our salvation, come and fill us. Come and convict us. Come and assure us. Come and empower us.